1: Hello and welcome to another episode of New Books in Religion. I'm Amarnath Amrasingam, and I will be co-hosting this podcast periodically along with Christian Peterson. For each program, we choose a new book that is especially interesting, and we chat with the author of the book. For this program, I had the pleasure of speaking with Reza Aslan about his highly popular and beautifully written new book, Zealot, The Life and Times of Jesus of Nazareth, published by Random House in 2013. Zealot has shot to the bestseller list in recent weeks, partly due to a controversial interview... Raza Aslan gave to Fox News during which he was questioned about why a Muslim would be interested in writing a book about the founder of Christianity. Christians in the United States and around the world have varying images of Jesus, from one who turns the other cheek to one who brings the sword. Aslan approaches Jesus by first taking the context in which he lived, which is 1st century Palestine, quite seriously. Aslan argues that Jesus' time was one awash in a fervent nationalism that is important for understanding the man as well as his message. It's not a book about Jesus of the Gospels. Indeed, it is not even a book about Christianity. Rather, Aslan's book attempts to grapple with how Jesus understood himself and his role during a volatile period in history. We also talked to Reza about his earlier books, No God But God and How to Win a Cosmic War, as well as his two edited collections, Tablet and Pen and Muslims and Jews in America. We talked to him about growing up Iranian while pretending to be Mexican in the United States during the 1980s, about graduate school, about Fox News and Islamophobia, and about writing for a popular audience, being a public intellectual, and the challenges involved with such endeavors. Thanks for listening. Welcome to another episode of New Books in Religion. This morning, I have the pleasure of talking to Reza Aslan about his great new book, Zealot, The Life and Times of Jesus of Nazareth. Good morning, Reza. I know you're you're just starting out your book tour, but uh, thanks for taking the time to join us today. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. So, usually on this podcast, we feature authors whose um, books may not get that much attention in the popular <laughs> media and and so, and so are usually just reviewed in academic journals and so on. But your book, of course, has been on the uh, New York Times bestseller list now for six weeks or so um, and has received a lot of attention. So, um, I look forward to talking about it. Yeah, thanks. Uh, Uh, But before we get to the book, I do have, you know, some biographical questions and and, and questions about your background. So can you start by telling us a little bit about yourself? You know, where were you born, um, where you went to school and how you became, how you first became interested in religion and so on?
0: Sure sure well uh, I was born in Iran um, we left Iran in 1979 after the revolution uh, I think my father thought that it might be a good idea to to leave the country temporarily while things settled down a bit obviously that temporarily became permanent um, yeah. we grew up mostly I grew up mostly in the Bay Area um, in in the early 80s a time in which you know it wasn't the best thing in the world to be Muslim or uh, Iranian. So it was kind of one of these weird things where, uh, you know, I I, I felt as though I had to kind of hide my my religion and my my culture and ethnicity um, and kind of uh, as much as possible absorb into American culture. Um, Didn't really grow up with much religious or or spiritual training at all. Um, Went to high school where... Uh, I joined a uh, an evangelical youth group uh, that I heard the Gospel story for the very first time and and converted to christianity and and really kind of threw my entire life into missionizing the gospels went to uh, undergrad at Santa Clara University, a fine jesuit institution and and there I began my formal study of the New Testament. And, you know, was confronted with, I think, most with what most people in my situation are confronted with, which is that I learned that a lot of the stuff that I thought I knew about Jesus was incorrect and um, began to be much more interested in the historical Jesus, this man who lived 2000 years ago, uh, than in the Christ that I had been taught about in church And although I left Christianity, I continued my studies um, in the Bible, particularly in the New Testament, and it was really at that point that the sort of impetus for this book arose. Um, went on from there, of course, and did my graduate work, I did my um, Master of Theological Studies in the History of Religions at Harvard and my Ph.D. in the Sociology of Religions at um, Santa Barbara, and then paused along the way to get an MFA in Fiction at the Hour Writers Workshop because I wanted to make sure that my writing uh, would be up to par with my scholarship. I think, you know, you said earlier at the, sh- at the show that uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of uh, books like this don't tend to end up on the New York Times bestseller list. Well, I was aware of that 20 years ago when I, when I went on this, and I, and I knew why, too. Uh, it was because, you know, we academics tend to write in, in an incredibly inaccessible fashion. And mm. so, for me, being able to share the things that I, was, that I was learning with a wide popular audience was always part of the plan.
1: Yeah, Um, I mean, we'll get to a little bit of that uh, a little later, I guess. But uh, I mean, um, you you mentioned that you know, growing up Iranian Iranian and Muslim in the '80s was a bit difficult. But is there are are there any particular experiences that stand out, or is it? Do you mean um, any outright discrimination, or was it more kind of self censorship or self or internalized discrimination?
0: No, this was a time. I mean, you know, there were pop songs about bombing Iran, and (laughs) you know. The 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 sort of WWF wrestling uh, was all geared towards you know uh, these sort of evil Iranian figures who would be beat up you know and stuff. Uh, No, I mean it was it was definitely a time in which it it was made very clear that Iranians were not welcome in the United States. And so, as I've said before, I spent a good part of the eighties pretending to be Mexican.
1: <clears throat> how 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 successful was that? <laughs> it was actually.
0: It turned out to be a lot more successful than I thought. You know, I kind of look Mexican. Um, I you know very easily picked up Spanish. I was around a lot of you know Mexican immigrant communities. Uh, I even learned how to breakdance. So that that really allowed me to to hide pretty well.
1: <laughs> yeah, break dancing is key, I guess. Yeah, that, be, that is that is. <laughs> Uh, so looking at some of your early uh, graduate education as you mentioned um, it, it, so you had an initial focus on kind of the scholarly study of Christianity but then you moved to a more scholarly study of Islam or, or a sociology of Islam to some degree um, uh, would that be accurate or, or and if so what what kind of led to that shift in focus
0: well not exactly I mean I none of my none of my degrees are in Islam per se all of my degrees are in the study of religion but my special right. Specialty is Western religions um, and Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Those are the religions that I've spent the most time studying. Uh, but as I as I always like to say, you know, <laughs> Islam pays the bills. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, it's uh, people. That's the religion that people want to know most about. That's the religion that I that I get a lot of my um, you know. Uh, uh, salary from from talking about it and, and <laughs> teaching um, but uh but it wasn 't a thing where it 's like you know I've suddenly switched to christianity i mean i it's it, the 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 Abrahamic religions are where my specialty lies
1: so you 've always been interested in the Abrahamic cool. religions and um, uh, so I guess that 's a good segue to t- talking uh, briefly about your first book uh, did you write no God but God in while in graduate school I did and if- yeah. And if so, how, how on earth did you find the time to do that? Uh,
0: you know, I mean, I didn't sleep for about a, a 10 years or so. I did. I, I did. I wrote No God But God while I was finishing my PhD, um, which actually was not a good thing. I mean, it, it did not exactly uh, endear me to my my professors and my colleagues, <laughs> as you can imagine. Um, yeah. Especially when it was, it became a hit. That made it. That made life much much worse. Uh, yeah. For me, you know, there was a lot of kind of well, you know, who, who, who do you think you are, kid? And I understand that. I mean, you know, I I, uh, I completely get where that where that sentiment comes from. But you no, know, uh, it, it, it was one of these things where I was given the opportunity to write this book, and uh, and it became something that I couldn't pass up. At the same time, I was so deeply <laughs> immersed in my graduate work that there was no way I could take a pause so I just had to do both at once.
1: Why did you decide to write an introduction or a a history of Islam at that particular point?
0: It was my agent's idea. (laughs) (laughs) I mean honestly this is kind of a funny story which is that um, I had written a novel and uh, you know while at my my MFA program and that novel got some interest from uh, an agent in New York and she was about to this is like two thousand three um, right. She was about to uh, go out with that novel to, to um, you know to sell it to publishers when she casually asked me, "Do I have any other books in mind uh, and I said, "Well yes, I do I, I have a, a number of book ideas, both fiction and non fiction and for instance, I have this one book idea uh that I have about islam and it was like dollar signs popped up in her eye, 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 eye you know, like a cartoon. She said, what do you mean Islam? What are you talking about? What about Islam? What about Islam? Uh, because this was, of course, like I said, two thousand two, two thousand three, right. and uh, I gave her sort of the the elevator pitch for what would become No God But God, and she was so excited about it that she tabled the novel. And just sold uh, No God But God instead, um, which you know in hindsight was a good idea. But again, yeah. it goes back to what I'm saying, which is that you know although I do I do a number of different things, and I consider myself uh, you know adept at different disciplines and, and fields. All anyone ever wants to hear about or talk about is Islam, <laughs> and I get it. I get it.
1: And you're perfectly willing to provide provide it.
0: I am perfectly willing to accommodate <laughs> that. Yes.
1: <laughs> but so, is there a similar story behind your second book, the How to Win a Cosmic War, or is, was that <laughs> As more a matter
0: of fact? There is. All right. So I guess we're we're gonna get rid in, get into this then. Uh, <laughs> uh, since this is a, a podcast about books, I like that. So. <laughs> So, uh no God but God came out it was It was wildly successful i mean more successful than I think anyone thought it would be um, and uh and and it was time for the next book and i said okay well now it's it's time to uh you know publish the novel that i that I've worked on, which was supposed to be the first book anyway and Random House said, "Yeah, that's cute um, what about another book just like this one <laughs> And, uh, and, you know, so they, I said, okay, fine, fine. So I, I wrote How to Win a Cosmic War, which is about religion and violence in Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Um, and I said, okay, well, I, I did what you asked, and now it's, uh, it's time to, to publish the novel. And they said,
1: yeah, well. <laughs>
0: um, so, uh, my agent actually was, was smart enough to um, they wanted the Jesus book uh, pretty badly, and uh, and my agent was smart enough to write into the contract that if they publish the Jesus book, then they have to publish the novel. <laughs> uh, and so my next book will finally be that novel, which at this point has to be rewritten because, as I often say, uh, novels aren't like twi- Twinkies; they have a shelf
1: life. Yeah, yeah. So your fir- actual first book will end up being your fourth. Fourth
0: book, book. right? Exactly. <laughs> But, and you how, know, how do, look, it's a, it's, a, it's a testimony to the publishing industry. I mean, I, I did not know this because, you know, I read a lot of, of fiction, but apparently Americans don't buy
1: fiction at all. Yeah. They buy, they buy things you can read on the subway, which is Har- Harlequin and...
0: Right. So, let me, I should say literary fiction, yes. They don't buy literary <laughs> fiction
1: uh, for the most part. Was H- How to Win a Cosmic War based on your dissertation at all? It was... Uh,
0: and, and that was uh you know a, the 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 key I think to being successful in multiple fields is what I like to call double dipping <laughs> and so yes indeed, uh, my dissertation, which was about jihadism as a social movement um, and, and which was like most dissertations completely unreadable um yeah. Uh, I, I did a very simplified version of that uh, mm. that
1: became How
0: to Win a Cosmic War. All right.
1: And I, I guess uh, another book that uh, has received some some positive press or quite a lot of positive press is, is Tablet and Pen, which is a anthology of modern Middle Eastern literature. Yeah. Um, how did... I mean it's an edited book volume like or, or I guess all anthologies are edited but I mean how how did that book uh come about
0: That book was a real passion project something that I've been working on for a really long time um, I'm a a board member in an organization called Words Without Borders we're a nonprofit that takes literature in every genre you can imagine from all over the world in every language that you can imagine. We uh, we get it right, we translate it professionally, usually not by professional translators but by uh, poets and writers who are, are you know, multilingual uh, to maintain of its literary quality as much as possible, and then we put it on our site, wordswithoutborders.org, for free for anyone to to, to use. So if you're if you want to read you know Chinese poetry or Brazilian short stories, um, you can go onto the site and and check it out. We also publish anthologies every once in a while. Um, we did a, a very popular anthology called Literature from the Axis. Of uh, evil in in I think 2002 2003 uh, we've done anthologies of uh, Chinese dissident writing things like that and when the board came to me and said you know we'd really like to do an anthology of Middle Eastern writing would you be interested in in um, editing it I, I jumped at the chance to do so um, this is you know you're, this is a part of the world that is steeped in in literature, I mean, some of the some of the titans of global literature uh, come from this part of the world, and while they are globally renowned, they're just simply not all that well known or read in the English speaking world. And I and I really wanted to change that to put together an anthology that would not just introduce English readers to some of these great uh, writers in Arabic, Turkish, Persian, and Urdu. Uh, but would be accessible again in, in a way that would make people who would normally not read a book like this I- interested in doing so. Um, the book is called Tablet and Pen. All of the proceeds from the book, um, every, you know, every penny that comes out of it goes uh, to supporting the, the work of Words Without Borders and I, and I really recommend the book for, for uh, anyone interested in this region or in literature.
1: Right, I mean, so usually when these kinds of works are translated, they become wildly popular. It's just that no one in the English-speaking world ever gets to really know them well enough, right, or, or hear about them. Right, so. and I think
0: I think what what I think Words Without <coughs> Borders wanted to do was to use you know the little bit of a platform that I had I had um, uh, managed to 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 get for myself uh, to bring a kind of attention to this book that normally wouldn't be there. And, and, it, and it worked. I mean, I think this, um, at, at one point, uh, it was, I think, number seven on Amazon, very briefly, um, right. which for any anthology of literature is remarkable, <laughs> but for an anthology of literature from the Middle East is uh, is pretty, pretty amazing. As Stephen Colbert said, if you read one anthology of Arabic poetry this year, it should be this one. <laughs> right.
1: Yeah, usually anthologies and edited books don't end up on any of those. No, no, they really do not. They really do not. And, and and the and the other edited book you have is on Jewish-Christian relations in the United States.
0: Yes, Muslims and Jews in America. This is edited by a colleague of mine at the University of San Francisco, Aaron Hahn-Topper. Aaron and I actually met in, in graduate school. We were getting our PhD at the same time, and we started a, a dialogue uh, group of Jews and Muslims um, at Santa Barbara. That ultimately became an organization that Aaron founded called... Abraham's vision, it's an attempt to uh, create understanding amongst uh, Jewish and Muslim Israeli and Palestinian youth um, and I became a board member of that organization and yeah, we, we together put together this anthology again, the proceeds of which go to support the organization um, that was about sort of the commonalities and the complexities that are involved in relations between the Muslim and Jewish communities in the United States, two communities that have had such a similar experience uh, of xenophobia and assimilation and 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 yet um, have not used that similarity to to draw together to, to form a united front on the contrary are most often at odds with one another instead of uh, cooperating with each other
1: right yeah. um, so moving on to the uh, the the the, your most recent book. Um, th- would you say that you know the scholarly study of religion is is fairly old, and the scholarly study of the historical Jesus is almost just as old? <laughs> uh, so, uh, w- why did you feel the need to write a another book on uh, book about Jesus?
0: You know, I'm not the first person to say that. The conclusions that I that I come to in my book are not new. They're not innovative. They are, uh, you know, conclusions based on debates that have been taking place. In the historical study of Jesus for two centuries now, uh, I am building upon um, the the work of my colleagues and my predecessors and and essentially joining my voice in that larger debate. What is new or unique in this book is that I have taken that debate uh, and distilled it and made it as accessible and appealing as possible to a popular audience. Uh, So, in other words... My colleagues and I would would not even scratch our heads at the notion that, for instance, that, you know, Jesus was not born in Bethlehem. Uh, that's, you know, the first – the second day of, of New Testament studies. You learn that. Uh, right. But let's be honest. For the vast majority of people uh, who are not biblical scholars, that is a, an absolutely controversial and provocative idea – um, yeah. So I've had a, a, It's interesting the response that I've had from this book. On, on the one hand, the response from the lay reader is that you know this is ridiculous and and provocative and 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 deliberately controversial. Uh, and the response from my colleagues has been kind of a collective yawn, like yeah, <laughs> so. Um, <laughs> so you can't please anyone, apparently. Um, mm. But I think that's the important thing to understand is that, you know, I'm, I'm proud. I'm very, very proud of, uh, you know, certain certain arguments that I make in this book that, that are nuanced, that may be uh, a new or interesting way of looking at topics that have been examined for two centuries. Uh, but the larger points that I make are, are ones that would sound very familiar to any uh, historian of, of the Bible uh, or or early Christianity.
1: Is is there an argument in the book that you feel uh, or is there a specific argument in the book that you feel has never been made before or or is there?
0: Not never been made before but I am proud of, of a lot of the work that I have done both when it comes to something that scholars refer to as the messianic secret in Mark, which is uh, something that I wrote my thesis on and, and that I had been working on for, for quite some time. I think I come up with some very interesting um, observations about how to how to think about the messianic secret. Um, and then I'm, I'm also proud of the work that I've done when it comes to understanding uh, the notion of the son of man. Um, For those unfamiliar, uh, you know, the the sort of general consensus of scholars is that uh, the preferred term that Jesus used to describe himself was the Son of Man. The problem is is that nobody has any clue what the Son of Man actually means uh, when it was used by Jesus. Uh, In fact, nobody knows now and nobody even knew then when Jesus used the term. Um, He was using it, of course, as a title. Uh, not as uh, a, a, an idiomatic expression, which is how it's most often used in the Hebrew Scriptures, um, and I, you know, I, I sort of rely on the same principles that other scholars used, uh, using uh, mostly the, the the Book of Daniel um, and some, some Enoch studies. Though I think I, I fall in the camp of those who believe that Enoch is a much late. Certainly, the similitudes of Enoch is a much much later uh, text. Um, than um, than some scholars believe and so I don't think that it was very influential to Jesus but trying to use the Son of Man to make a larger argument about how Jesus viewed himself in a kingly role is one that's that I wouldn't say is completely new but it is it is one um, that I'm particularly proud of
1: mm-hmm. and uh, what is the scholarship around the messianic secret you mentioned?
0: Uh, so the messianic secret is, is something that you know it's, it's, a, it's something that people have noticed for a very long time. It's this uh, somewhat odd phenomenon that takes place primarily in the Gospel of Mark, but which then is picked up in Matthew, in Luke, uh, in which Jesus repeatedly uh, goes to great lengths to hide. His messianic identity—you uh, know—constantly um, forbidding anyone from from telling anyone who he is, uh, silencing demons who try to out him, uh, forbidding uh, people that he has healed from speaking about what he's done. Um, there's a lot of, lot of scholarship on, on what this means. Uh, some people uh, think that it can be traced to the historical Jesus. I, I agree. Some people think that it's just a, a literary flourish of, of Marx. Um, and, and I think most people, those, those who fall in the former category, agree that the Messianic secret um, provides the key to unlocking Jesus' self-consciousness, how, what he actually thought he himself was, not what others thought he was.
1: And, and your interpretation of that uh, is, what, what is self-consciousness?
0: Well, my, my interpretation of that has to do with something that is rarely spoken of when it comes to the Messianic secret, which is the collusion of Jesus' Son of Man ideas into the Messianic secret. So, one thing that's, that's interesting is that uh, a lot of times in the Gospel of Mark, in which somebody ascribes the title of Messiah to Jesus, um, and he and he either overtly rejects that title or or brushes it aside. What often follows is some kind of diatribe about um, the Son of Man, and so what I argue is that. Jesus's interpretation of the Son of Man is; it has to be seen as part and parcel of the Messianic secret. That, to put it in its simplest way possible, that Jesus understanding the the ramifications of the Messiah and knowing, you know, the the uh, the fate that all the other would be Messiahs in his time faced, um, tried to subsume others. Messianic expectations into his own unique and somewhat innovative understanding of the Son of Man um, as a a kingly figure, um, and, and so in a sense, Jesus was uh, referring to himself as king.
1: Mm-hmm. So that that's kind of your interpretation of the Son of Mark. Uh,
0: Sorry, the, the son, uh, of uh, man. son of Man. Yes, yes, that's right.
1: <laughs> That this
0: is Jesus's way of obliquely uh, declaring his kingly ambitions,
1: right? And but it's it's not really that argument that has caused the controversy so much has, it? <laughs> it, it, or or has it?
0: Well, no, it depends on on you know where the controversy lies. Uh, you know, for again, for popular readers, um, there's a lot. That uh, that you know comes across as controversial, from little things like you know uh, where Jesus was born to big things like what Jesus's goals were. Um, I think the controversy comes from the fact that what I try to do is unearth the obvious political ramifications of Jesus' statements, Jesus' seemingly religious statements. And in doing so, uh, try to point out that, you know, he may not have been the pacifistic preacher of good works uh, with no interest in the cares of this world that he is so often viewed as being uh, in the modern world.
1: Right. So did, did, did some of this controversy, you know, sort of surrounding the Fox News interview and similar issues come as a surprise to you? Or or, or, or did you kind of know that writing about Jesus in the United States? Would...
0: <laughs> <laughs> right. No, listen, look, look, I knew, of course, I knew what I was writing. And of course, I understood that some people would find it controversial and provocative and, and react negatively towards it. Uh, that response hasn't primarily been by Christians. On the contrary, it's been sort of the usual suspects, the the kind of uh, anti-Muslim uh, chorus uh, on the far right that has attacked this book the way that they've been attacking everything that I've done for the last decade. So I'm not surprised by that. If you ask me, is there anything in the, in the criticisms uh, or the reactions of the book that has been surprising to me, there has been. And it's been this weird... Um, attack on my on my credentials that I did not expect from the mainstream from my colleagues in fact um, mm. that surprised me it didn't surprise me when Glenn Beck who you know doesn't know anything about any subject uh, <laughs> s- you know started attacking my credentials because he doesn't understand how academia works I get that it surprised right. me that um, you know Colleagues and mainstream news outlets began attacking my, my credentials. Something, by the way, that never happened when I wrote my previous books on religion, <laughs> just all of a sudden started happening when I happened to write about uh, Jesus. Um, and despite the fact that these attacks have been repeatedly answered by every university that has ever educated me and every university that has ever employed me, um, for some reason, they're still there. And it, it just kind of indicates this odd... Um, obsession with um, attacking the messenger and not the message, you know, the, the writer and not not the book itself. That that so came that, that came as a surprise.
1: So, in that context, do do you see the criticism as falling within the broader context of you know Islamophobia or discrimination, or is it, do you see it as more an isolated kind of? Thing?
0: No, I think it, it falls in the in the larger thing of let's not take this book seriously. So right. let's not take this book seriously because the guy writing it is a Muslim. Let's uh-huh. not take this book seriously because the guy writing it has some agenda against Christianity. Let's not take this book seriously because the guy has no business writing it because his credentials are, are suspect. It's all the same thing.
1: Yeah. So how, how have you handled some of these older or, or long-term personal attacks like people from Pam, Pamela Geller and <laughs> others? Or have you just ignored them entirely?
0: Well… I'm of the opinion that people like Pamela Geller, Robert Spencer, the sort of uh, mavens of the Islamophobia industry, are clowns, and that the proper response to a clown is laughter. So I just make fun of them. You know, I, I think they're hilarious, and I and I you know just mock them as much as I possibly can. Um, but. Nevertheless, I mean, I I do recognize that it can be quite serious. I get a large number of death threats from these from these people, and now that kind of my family has been uh, insinuated into uh, some of my work because of the fact that you know my wife is a Christian. Even she's getting these weird uh, attacks, you know, via email and and on social media. So uh, you know, I'm, I would be lying if I said that it doesn't bother me, but. You know, you, it bothers you when you move on.
1: So death threats, it's gone as far as death threats? Oh,
0: I've got an entire
1: uh, folder of death threats that goes back a decade. <laughs> <laughs> and, and what have they, what has been the main theme of them? Like, what do they, um, what do they hate you for?
0: Mostly just for being a Muslim. Yeah, not for <laughs> anything else. Just, you know, threats about... Me and my and my Muslim uh, friends and how, you know, they're going to kill us all and uh, go back to Arabia, which is my favorite one.
1: <laughs> for, so just for being all Muslim. Yeah.
0: <laughs> go back to – I've never even been to Arabia, so I don't even know. I'd love to go to Arabia, but <laughs> –
1: so, I mean, uh, before we conclude, I just, I did have some broader questions uh, that you touched on earlier about, you know, being a public intellectual and uh, issues about, issues around popular writing. And so, uh, um, how do you think academia in general views popular writing or public intellectuals? And, and has, I, I mean, I know, how, I, know what the cl- I know what the climate was like, yeah. but has it, do, you think, do you think it's changed in some way? Or it-
0: Well, at, at best, they tolerate them and dismiss them as dilettantes. Uh, as unserious. At worse, uh, they uh, they openly deride them, um, and and I think that that's something. I mean, I talk to graduate students a lot about this. Um, the the problem with academia, the reason there is such deep anti intellectualism in American society, and that that by the way is the core of what happened with the whole Fox News controversy. I think that that got lost is that it wasn't just the the idea that a Muslim was writing about Jesus that I think confused Fox News. It was the idea that a scholar of religions could write objectively or as objectively as is humanly possible about a religious figure. And that sentiment, that distrust of scholarship is not Fox's fault, it's our fault. Right. It's the fault of, of we academics who spend all of our time in our dusty libraries speaking to each other in an incomprehensible language that nobody else c- could understand, let alone possibly you know, be interested in. It's the fault of we academics who, when one of us does try to break through the, the ivory tower and speak to a larger popular audience, uh, becomes immediately tagged as unserious, as not really an academic, and those are, you know, uh, accusations that I have gotten, you know, my entire career. Um, I think that that is changing. When I speak to graduate students, especially, what I reckon, what I see is this desire for them to have a role in the public marketplace of ideas, to take the things that they are learning and studying, things that have important contemporary, real world implications, and to apply them uh, in, in the media, in, in the public realm. Um, so I, I, I think what I'm saying is that I, I feel optimistic about the sort of younger and newer generation of academics who are entering these fields, regardless of the discipline. Um, and and I, I, I hope that there is a, a tide that's turning um, wherein uh, my colleagues will recognize that they have something valuable to contribute um, to the public dialogue. And that unless they are willing to try to distill their ideas to simplify it to make it appealing and accessible then uh they're going to they're going to sort of think themselves into irrelevance if you will
1: <laughs> yeah i mean i mean cuz cuz the reaction you received from your colleagues after the first book came out um, uh, arguably wouldn 't have happened if it was just a journal article or 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 some other um academic publication right it, 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 was it partly that it was a popular press and popular book or? absolutely
0: i mean look i you know i hear this all the time from from uh you know uh when I when I do readings or or talks, there's there are there are often, you know, fairly well-informed people in the audience and someone will say, uh, you know, didn't Marcus Borg say X, Y, and Z? And didn't John Dominic Cresson uh, agree with this and that? And didn't John Meyer do this and Richard Horsley do that, uh, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And again, what I often remind them is, yes. What I am doing is taking their words, their thoughts, their ideas, building upon them, certainly, and reinterpreting them, certainly, uh, but making them accessible to other people. I mean, these are very, very good scholars, very, very good thinkers who have been deeply influential in my work and in my studies. But the reason that no one outside of we specialists have ever heard of them is precisely because of their either inability or refusal to um, make their thoughts and ideas more accessible. Hmm.
1: So, so maybe for the benefit of, you know, the increasing pool of starving uh, doctoral graduates, um, it, how did you or what advice would you have in terms of how to make the transition um, into popular writing and into popular publishing? Are there any uh, tips of the trade in that sense?
0: Do what you did for your – okay, take what you did for your dissertation and then do the exact opposite. (laughs) (laughs) So that's the best advice that I can give you.
1: But, I mean, it, it's not easy to break into getting an agent and, you know, finding all that kind of stuff either, right? It's, it's, uh... it's not
0: as hard as it sounds. I mean, there are millions and millions of agents, you know, in the world all looking to uh, bring on clients. All you need is to have something that's appealing that they would be interested in in, in reading. Um, but uh, But it's not – I mean, I know it sounds like this kind of – thing like oh my goodness like you know getting an agent that seems like that's like getting discovered by Hollywood well it's not actually there are millions of agents uh, and, and that's what they do for a living and they're looking for, for interesting material and I think the way that you find an agent is that you find people who are writing books that are kind of like the books that you want to write uh, authors who are kind of like you and you find out who their agents are and you um, and you send to them because you know that they're already interested in this kind of material, um, and and you know it's 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 really not much more complicated than that.
1: When you say when you say do the exact opposite of what you did for your dissertation, do, or do you, is that uh, just your style of writing? Or, yes, or, or,
0: I, <laughs> and your audience. <laughs> you know, I often say that a dissertation is. A piece of writing that only three people on Earth would be interested in. Your dissertation committee, um, and so, so what I'm saying is, write a book that everyone else would be interested in. That that you know that distills. I mean, I think my second book is a really good example of that. My dissertation is unreadable. Um, you know, it's all uh, very complex uh, terminology. Um, you know, facts, data, figures, things like that the popular version of it is just the conclusions
1: I mean so is it a uh, is it a different you, you, so you wouldn't go as far as to say that it's a different skill set altogether that your academic training has kind of been pivotal in popular writing as well
0: oh for sure for sure I mean I, look I mean all I I mean I I beg people I, I beg people to please read my notes uh, you know I I try to embed my methodology um, and hide my research as much as possible, because the po- popular readers aren't interested in those things. Um, but I always include them at the back of the book um, so that they're not disrupting, but they are still there. Um, in fact, I, I wish that people would do it more often. I mean I, I look at a lot of the criticisms I get from my colleagues um, and some of them even admit openly. I mean i I remember one. Uh, reviewer um, who's a, a, prof- a Bible professor at Barnard, uh, who wrote a review of the book, who just openly admitted that she didn't read the notes, <laughs> she, said, she said, well, you know, I wish they were footnotes so they were easy to follow. Well, if they were footnotes, nobody would have bought the book, <laughs> uh, but they're there, and if you're going to criticize, you know, my scholarship, you should probably read that scholarship first. Um,
1: But, you know, it is what it is, as they say. Well, it sounds great. Um, So, Reza, thanks again for talking with us. I um, wish you continued success with the book and uh, have fun with the book tour. Thanks, Amar. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to New Books in Religion. That was my conversation with Reza Aslan, author of Zealot, The Life and Times of Jesus of Nazareth, published by Random House in 2013. Please join us next time.